0: Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. If you would take your Bible and open up uh, to the Book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking there. I'm sorry, First Corinthians, 1 uh, Corinthians, the third chapter, and that is in your uh, Bible that is in your pew is it is on a thousand and either fourteen or fifteen. In just a few minutes, uh, we'll be starting there. Uh, as we mentioned last Sunday evening uh, the the request for all of us to be prayerful uh, that we can reach as many souls as uh, God would give us the opportunity and the ability to do so in 2009. Uh, Do continue to pray in in that manner and let's make sure that we keep our focus on uh, reaching out and doing what we can do to increase the population of heaven and along that same uh, vain of thought. We are so thankful for Emily and for Shayla and uh, them being baptized into Christ this Sunday morning and last Sunday night after the evening services. And uh, it's a wonderful time when we think about a new year. Oftentimes we think about fresh starts and we think about the opportunity uh, that we have to make changes in our life and to grow. and And I hope you continue to think that way. That's the beauty of a relationship with God is that His invitation is always open. Uh, the elders have asked me to mention to you that. Uh, Seven of the elders and and four of the ministers will be away next weekend. Uh, At the end of each year, we usually go on a minister's And elders retreat and we do a lot of planning a lot of uh uh, praying and and just uh growing together and this year we had the opportunity to visit a congregation in edmond oklahoma that is about twice our size and so we want to go there just to talk with them to to see how they do ministry and to see how uh their elders serves a congregation that's that large see how their staff uh serves a, a congregation that is that size and um Well, just to really put it plainly, uh, out of uh, 11, that, when we take the 11 that's going on the trip and then our two additional elders that will uh, stay back, uh, out of uh, that many men, none of us have ever worked with a congregation this size. And uh, we have one, we have Griff that's been a part of a congregation larger than this, but uh, it's it's the idea of, of us just trying to grow. Uh, as individuals, and grow as, um, as, as leadership and in, in vision. And so be prayerful about that. Uh, there's not a, a particular agenda except to, to grow. And so be prayerful about that. And, and uh, we look forward to the time that we can spend together. And we look forward to um, uh, hopefully the things that we can grow and be encouraged as we serve God together. I also just want to mention that uh, the fourth grade class this morning... Uh, they, they brought me several thank you notes and, and little gifts, and it was just precious, and I thank you so much. Uh, it, it is very, very encouraging, and, and we love uh, you fourth graders, and we love all of our youth, and we want to do whatever we can do to encourage you. We are blessed tremendously with, with youth that love God and youth that love God's church, and, and I just hope that that continues generation after generation here in the life of this congregation. Who are you? That's right, I'm asking you, who are you? Right now, if you had to, in just a phrase, say, I am, but you can't use your name. Who are you? In other words, where do you find your identity? Maybe if you can't use your name, somebody would quickly say, I'm a golfer. Or maybe you'd name your occupation, I'm a mortgage banker. Or maybe you'd name a a hobby that you really enjoy, and you'd say, that's who I am. Or, or maybe you, you work out a lot or you're a runner and you, you mentioned something about your fitness. I want to ask you something. If that's where you find your identity, what are you going to do when you can no longer do that? You know, there are a lot of people that set themselves up for really failure in life because they find their identity in material things, in their activities, in finding acceptance from others. Sometime at school, I'm one of the popular kids. But where does God want us to find our acceptance? Because all of those things that we've mentioned, not that in and of themselves they're necessarily wrong by any means, but all of those things that we've mentioned, they're temporary. And if we find our identity in those things, we are shallow. And so there's a phrase at the very end of 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, that that is just beautiful. And it ties in with our theme this year with God we can. And notice there, as we read verse 23, 1 Corinthians 3 and 23, as he says, And you are Christ. And Christ is God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? You are Christ. Who are you? I am the one who belongs to Christ. Can you say that? When when you find your identity, is that immediately what comes to your mind? Who am I? I'm Christ. And notice again the possessiveness of that statement. I'm Christ. Apostrophe S. That ties in with, notice it's the same chapter that we studied a little bit out of this morning. 1 Corinthians 3. Do you notice as you back up there in verse 9? The possessiveness again, for we are God's worker or fellow worker. You are God's field. You are God's building. Who are you? If we find our identity in any other source, we're going to lose focus of what life is all about. And we're going to lose purpose of what life is all about. And the truth is, we're going to lose eternity, eternal life about what life should be all about remember this morning I said, we'll go back and we'll kind of put a foundation under some of this. It's interesting to take the time to say, what led Paul to this statement? Really, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3 are kind of just a continual dialogue or discussion that Paul has. As we look at this map, uh, it's just a, a, a reminder of when we open the book of 1 Corinthians, what are we opening there? You see that on the map there, uh, Corinth was a town that was a metropolitan area, probably about 400,000 in that day and time, and it was on a trade route, so there would have been people coming in and out of the town all the time, and uh, historians say that kind of like our metropolitan areas today that, that are in, in areas especially close to, the, uh, on the coast where people are constantly coming in and out, a lot of the time immorality is very prevalent in settings like that, and Corinth was known for that. And so Paul goes into Corinth on his second missionary journey. Remember, he first entered in a of those people. And God insisted that he stayed there and he ended up staying there, establishing the church there. Remember, God told him, I have many people in this city. He told him that before they were actually converted. God was prophesying there. In other words, saying, you stay, I want you to reach these people. He stayed there a year and a half and he reached a lot of people for the Lord. And then he continued on his way and now he's over in Ephesus. You see, just across the Aegean Sea there, he's now in Ephesus. And remember, he stayed there three years and he loved the work at Ephesus. It's obvious when you read in Acts and when you read in the book of Ephesians and, and all. And he loved the people there, Ephesus. While he's at Ephesus, a group of people make their way over, sent apparently by the leadership and one of the, the uh, or influential people, I should say, of Corinth. And one of the influential people, were, her name was Chloe, and, and sent over from Chloe's household to say, Paul. There are some serious things of disorder. Some were doctrinal as it pertains to the church and some were immoral. And, and it says there are some serious matters taking place and, and we want you to give answers to these questions. And so that's why when you read in 1 Corinthians and especially when you get beyond the 4th chapter, It's almost laid out like a list form. Each chapter is about a topic. And what Paul does is he takes their questions that they have asked him and he writes an answer to the question. And then we have the next chapter, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And so, but the first three or four chapters, what he deals with is unity. Now tonight, I want us to emphasize a very simple point. But it's very important for unity. And any of us that have been a part of a congregation that's united, we know what that blessing is. And any of us that have been a part of a congregation for a period of time where there was not unity, we know what a burden that is. And so hopefully all of us from either side can say, I love to be a part of unity. All right, well, here's the question. What is it that creates unity? We're really bringing somewhat to a close His strong discourse urging them to avoid the divisions that were taking place and to be unified. And as we go through the third chapter, just from this morning's text to what we read just a moment ago, you see what his plea is. You and I will always be unified if we remember that we are God's. When we remember that we are God's fellow workers. We are God's uh, field we are God's building. When we can say, as he says at the end of this chapter in verse 23, when we can say, I am Christ, that's where unity is found. Now, what was creating their division? Drop back, if you will, to the first chapter. And as we drop back to the first chapter, I, we're going to read in just a moment uh, verse uh, 11 and 12 and 13. And if you have your Bible open, I want to pick up one verse earlier. I'd like to pick up back in verse 10, but we don't have a slide for that one. And, and notice as we re- read verse 10, uh, Paul immediately addresses the division that's taking place with a solution here. And he says, Now I plead with you. See, that, that's something that's serious. Anytime there's division, we have to get very serious about that. And so Paul says, I plead with you, brethren. See, reminding them, we're together in this. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters. We're united, supposed to be. Now, I plead with you, brethren, and notice the authority. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly, that's completely joined together. How? In the same mind, in the same judgment. Somebody might say, well, you know, as as we grow in size, it's going to be harder for us to all be together and speak the same thing. Please believe this. Please be prayerful about this. We can't sacrifice that. It doesn't matter how large we grow. God expects us to speak the same things. That's one of the reasons we have the Get Connected class where anybody that wants to learn more about us, for 10 or 12 weeks, we go over the very basics. If you want to get connected in the life of this congregation, we need to be connected that we understand the Scriptures as the authority. We need to be connected that we understand Christ is the only way to salvation. to to salvation and he gives us a single plan of salvation not a multiple choice and we need to understand that Christ started one church and we need to be a part of that one church we take the time to offer that on a weekly basis why because we believe firmly what the word of God says that we ought to all be speaking the same thing well how are we going to do that Notice he says that we have one mind. Now, that has to be the mind of Christ. It's not your mind. It's not my mind because we differ in that. So when it comes to doctrinal things, we need to speak the mind of Jesus Christ. But now what about the things that aren't doctrinal? For example, what time are we going to have Sunday evening services? Are we going to have Sunday evening services? Who's going to decide that? God has given us elders. And, and like Hebrews, the 13th chapter, verse 17, do, do you obey those who rule over you? If we obey those who rule over us, well, we have elders that make decisions and they lead us in the things that are are areas of judgment. And then the question is, will you respect and submit to the leadership that God has given us? Now, think how beautiful this is. If you and I believe the Word of God and we have the same mind of Christ in all the areas of doctrine... We're together on that. And then if all of us love and respect our elders as they make the judgment calls that do not pertain to doctrine, but they have to be made, and we all say, I love and respect our elders, I love and respect God's plan, I'll unite then. What's going to happen? We're all going to speak the same thing. You know, in some of the things of judgment, we may not all think the same thing because we're going to have different opinions. And that's true whether it's in a, in a family or if it's in a civic organization, if it's in a community, or if it's in a church. We all know that, that we may feel different ways about things of opinion. But isn't it wonderful when we have unity across the board that says, but I love and respect God's plan. I love and respect the elders that God has laid out. And uh, by, by design in the church and the ones that he's given us specifically in this congregation. And so now we are speaking the same thing. But notice, this wasn't happening to them. And let's read on. And notice in 11 and 12, the problem that was taking place. In 11, he says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions. A very strong word there. Even in the original language, a real strong word uh, for strife. He's, there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you said is. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or am I of Christ? Now, that's the division, and notice the questions he asks about this division. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Isn't it interesting that they were literally dividing over good men? Peter, Cephas, Paul, and Apollos, to our knowledge, were all teaching the same thing. We literally have division taking place here, and it really has nothing to do with doctrine. We have division taking place where they had created some form. We're not given uh, just tremendous enlightenment of what the division was, but they had formed some kind of sex between uh, or following these various men. Now, I might be completely wrong on this, but let let me just give you an opinion. Maybe it might have been. You can imagine the old-timer, Peter. He was one of the original apostles. He was so well respected uh, even by the apostles. Remember, he was the natural leader among the apostles. He was even the one that Jesus seemed to lean on pretty much the most, maybe him and John. And so you can imagine some saying, oh, I tell you what, he was one of the original 12 he was the one that preached on the day the church was established. I'm telling you, Peter is my man. I'm going to line up with him. And I, I tell you, I, just, I don't think as much of you people that you like Apollos. Your problem is you just like a guy that's eloquent in speech. Oh, Apollos, he was mighty in Scripture. You know how sometimes you say, oh, I love hearing that preacher. He can quote Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. That seems to be maybe what Apollos came across as. He was mighty in Scripture and eloquent in speech. You know, one of those, not like your preacher you have now, that kind of preacher that when he gets done preaching, you say, wow, is it already time? I can't believe that. He was eloquent in speech. And then, then you got the latecomer, but he was the university guy. You got Paul that was well-trained among the highest education of the Jews. So here comes in this scholarly fellow, and, and he's the new kid on the block. He is an apostle born out of season, he said. And so now he comes on the scene, and, and he is probably considered, I would think even in that day, one of the most effective missionaries of his day, uh, one of the most scholarly of his day. And so you can imagine people lining up behind good men, but yet they had created divisions among themselves. And Paul writes the first, second, and third chapters of 1 Corinthians to say, brothers and sisters, this is absolutely unacceptable. And that's how we blend finally into the third chapter where he says, are you going to try to make an argument that you're a policies? You're supposed to be God's fellow worker. You're going to try to make a, an argument that you are, you belong to Paul? You are supposed to be God's building. You're going to say that you're Peter's? You're supposed to be Christ. Christ is supposed to own you. How important is that? Well, it's so important that he addresses it for three, and really you could even say parts of the fourth chapter. He spends as much time on this single topic as he does any other topic. And I would like for you to notice uh, a passage here in verse 18. In other words, we read down part of that paragraph in 13 uh, where he's laying the groundwork of identifying the problem. And notice what he says the answer is in 18. This is still the first chapter in verse 18. Here's the answer. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He's got division taking place. And Paul says, I want to tell you the answer. It's the message of the cross. Do what? The message of the cross is supposed to help with the problem of division? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you remember a time where the message of the cross created division? Be turning, if you will, to Matthew, the 16th chapter. And if that doesn't jog your memory, you'll probably remember it when we start reading it. There was a time where if you had asked Peter why he was creating division like this, he probably would have said, it's because I love Jesus so much. And you see, that's what I'm wanting to see tonight of how how crafty Satan is to try to create division. Here in Corinth, he created division by individuals in an unfaithful manner, following good men. And, and now we're about to read a passage where Peter starts causing division. And if you ask him why, he would say, I only did it because I love Jesus so much. We must be careful that we never lose sight, that we remain Christ, but we remember that when I say I'm Christ I need to remember the message of the cross and make sure that I understand really what it means to say I'm Christ. In other words, it would be easy for me to say I'm Christ but then live a life that's not living as Christ would live. And so let's look here in Matthew uh, the 16th chapter, uh, in verse 21, this is where he's, Jesus is beginning to tell His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took Him aside, and He began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this shall not happen to you. Peter, why would you say that? What's this going to cause? Notice what it causes. These are some of the strongest words Jesus ever spoke to an individual. In 23, he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Let's pause there for just a moment. Jesus, now this is prophetic, but Jesus had a message of the cross. He was trying to pair his apostles to say, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem and to die. The message of the cross. And Peter says, Lord, I don't like that message. And it created division there. Jesus said, Well, you're going to have to get behind me because that's where I'm going. Isn't it interesting how sometimes, because of our 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 understanding of love and empathy and protection, that sometime we forget the message of the cross, we forget that we are Christ so that we can stand with someone that we feel like needs our support. You know, now we could try to think up literally a thousand illustrations of this because all of us have been there probably multiple times. But you know, when a family member or a friend or someone comes by and and they tell you one of those stories that you feel so sorry for them and then they tell you what they're going to do because of this situation and what they're doing is just wrong. But yet what they're wanting you to say is, that's a good thing, right? And at that time, we have to decide, who am I? Am I Christ or am I going to join up with these individuals? You could probably ask anybody standing around Peter and said, Hey, was that a good thing Peter did? And human nature is going to say, That's wonderful. He took a stand to protect Jesus. But yet you ask Jesus, Hey, was that a good thing Peter did? Jesus would say, He is hindering the message of the cross. No, it's not a good thing. Well, what do we mean when we talk about the message of the cross? I hope up to this point, if it hasn't clicked with you, you're saying, I still, it's just not fitting together like a hand in glove. Well, notice where Jesus takes this teaching. And maybe when we talk about he didn't understand the message of the cross. Notice as we read the very next verse, then we're in 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see what Jesus is saying here? Peter's just done this. They're probably now confused. How can it be a bad thing that you want to protect Jesus? And he says, maybe we don't understand the message of the cross. The message of the cross is you have to be willing to suffer. Are you ready to deny self? Notice here, you have a desire To follow me? Well, you have to have a willingness to deny self. In other words, are you willing to take up your cross daily, which means you crucify your self-will to always do God's will? Are we willing to do that on a daily basis? And when we're ready to do that, we're ready to have unity based upon the message of the cross. Whenever I can say humbly and completely, Lord... I sacrificed my will for you. Remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane? and Remember when he bowed down and, and he did not want to go to that cross? He wasn't looking forward to the pain or the shame. And remember, he prayed, let this cup pass from me. But then he would say, not my will, but thy will be done. The very thing he was doing was the thing he requires us to do. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him be able to pray to the Father and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And then he gives us, A scenario. And this scenario is is really, when when you, you break it down and dissect it a little bit, it's really powerful. Look in 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, pause there for just a moment. You gain the whole world. Pick out the car of your dreams. Pick out, I'm talking, the car. Don't hold back now. We're, we're, we're dreaming here, okay? The car of your dreams. Now go ahead while you're dreaming, and you get two of them. Now wait a minute. This passage says you get the world. You, you not only get all the cars like that that are made, you get the dealerships and the manufacturer. You get the whole world. Truth is, you get every dealership. And not only that, what business are you in? They give you the business. Not only that, you get every other business. You can go anywhere around the world, and you own it all. What what have you gained if the whole world is given to you at expense of your soul? Imagine that imbalances. The whole world. But you've lost your soul. You've still lost the most. Because the world, none of its pleasures, none of its things, is going to bring you satisfaction, fulfillment. Ecclesiastes 5.5 teaches us that the man that loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. And the one that loves abundance will not be satisfied with abundance. They will never satisfy us. So, we foolishly make that exchange. And then we say, but Satan, I, I goofed. I tell you what, I'm going to give you back the whole world. Can I get my soul? Well, now we've got a problem here. Look at the very next question. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. The whole world is not worth more than your soul. So you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus says, you foolishly, I, us, we foolishly make this exchange where we take the whole world and we lose our soul. And then after we do it, we say, oh, that was foolish. I want to get my soul back. But now we turn to Satan and we say, I'll give you the whole world. Will you give my soul back. He says, that's not worth it. Your soul is worth more than the whole world. No, I won't give you. That's why we talk about being saved by grace. The only way we can be saved is by the blood of Jesus Christ, by God's grace. He purchases us when we can't afford it. Even if we owned the entire world, we could not afford our salvation. you see the story of the cross now? The story of the cross is, Peter jumps in front and says, I want to stop this. And in other words, Jesus says, Peter, you're causing division. I'm on a mission to fulfill the will of my Father, and you're standing in the way. And then He turns around and says, but I can teach you this lesson. If you want to appreciate the story of the cross, what you need to do is be willing yourself to crucify your self-will, to esteem the will of God in your life. And then let me remind you why it's worth it. It's worth it because of this. One of these days, one of these days, now it might be over an eternity, or hopefully it would be sooner. You're going to realize that whatever exchange you've made for your soul, it's not worth it. And the only way you can get your soul back is the story of the cross. What unites us? It's the story of the cross that unites us. A brother or sister wants you to take up for them. I've got to stand with righteousness. I'm Christ. It's because of the story of the cross. I'm Christ. The world tries to pull you and and you try to have a foot in both places and and you say, I can't do that. Why? I don't belong to the world. I'm Christ. How do you know that? I know the story of the cross. And So Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, he takes chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 to say, you're dividing behind some good men, but it's still wrong. And if you'll just see the wisdom and the message of the cross, you'll find the unity that's needed. For instance, tonight, what would you give to have the story of the cross as an active part of your life? You know what the Lord requires? All of us. And with God... We can. Because we're safe. When we give our life to God, we're not taking a foolish risk. It's really the foolish risk when we keep our life in our own hands. Because the passage we just read, he says, that's when you lose it. And so tonight, we're extending the Lord's invitation. The invitation that's always open. The invitation where the Lord says, I want to give you something that's sure. Something that's secure. Something that's steadfast. You're not making a gamble here. You're investing your life where it matters. Is your life, is your life in the story of the cross? If not, why not? Why not tonight being the time that you leave here saying, I am Christ. I belong to Him. By His grace and because of my obedience, I'm Christ. And in that we all can unite. If you've never been baptized into Christ, won't you do that tonight? Or if you have and you've fallen away, won't you come back to Him tonight? Come as we stand and as we sing.